You're listening to the Kurdistan in America podcast, the official podcast of the Kurdistan Regional Government representation in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Dulavan Barwari. This episode features an interview with Dr. Shahla Gili. Dr. Shahla is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. She obtained her master's and PhD in international affairs from Tufts University. In our discussion, we talk about the U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue, Erbil Baghdad relations, and the fate of Nineveh Plains and Sinjar. But before listening to the interview, here are the latest news updates about the Kurdistan region and the rest of Iraq. As we discussed in previous episodes, negotiations over disputes between the KRG and Baghdad have been ongoing for more than three months. The latest round of meetings between the two sides in early August appear to have reached a deadlock as Baghdad demanded full control over the KRG borders. However, after a phone call with the Iraqi Prime Minister, Mustafa Kadimi, on August 16th, the KRG Prime Minister, Masoud Barzani, announced that Baghdad had agreed to a partial payment of Kurdistan region's share of the national budget. This is a positive development as it implies that the two sides may actually be approaching an understanding on bilateral disputes. Another major development was the U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue. On August 19th, the Iraqi delegation that included a KRG team of five met their American counterparts at the State Department in Washington, D.C. The talks were focused on cooperations in the economy, energy, political, security, cultural, and humanitarian fields. We will be discussing this topic in depth with our guest today. So let's pivot to the humanitarian and security side. The Turkish military incursion in the Kurdistan region since June has severely impacted the local population. More than 15 civilians and two Iraqi army officers have been killed. And dozens of villages, including 10 Assyrian villages, have been abandoned. Turkey also conducted airstrikes near the town of Sinjar and Khanasur on August 23rd, killing two people. Now, these airstrikes only reinforce the trauma and pain of the Yazidi community, especially as it coincides with the 6th anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. In August 2014, ISIS seized Sinjar, savagely killing more than 5,500 Yazidis and abducting about 6,300 women and children who were later forced into slavery. 3,000 are still missing, and more than 220,000 Yazidis remain displaced. So the Turkish airstrikes adds another layer to the unstable security condition in the region, which delays the return of the Yazidis to their places of origin. Turning to the KRG activities in the U.S., the KRG representative, Bayan Abdurrahman, accompanied the KRG team in the U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue, and she has been holding virtual meetings with congressional leaders, officials from the Department of State and Defense, as well as the White House. And finally, we have another exciting update on culture. On August 20th, Microsoft announced that it added two Kurdish dialogues, Kirmanji and Sorani, to its text translation languages. They'll be available in Microsoft Translator and Office. That's the news update. Now, the interview with Dr. Shahla Gili. Dr. Shahla is currently a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. She was a principal development specialist at DAI Global. Dr. Shahla was previously a senior advisor to both the Speaker of the Iraqi Parliament and the Speaker of Kurdistan Parliament. She obtained her master's and PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at the Tufts University. And her PhD dissertation was on decentralization and state building in Iraq. Welcome to the show, Shahla Khan. Thank you for having me, Kat It's a pleasure. My first question is about yourself and your experience. You were born in Kirkuk and raised in Baghdad. 
and that's where you attended university. Then later, you served as a senior advisor to both speakers of parliament of Kurdistan and Iraq, and then moved to the U.S. to pursue a master's and Ph.D. in international relations, in which you completed. Tell me about your experience and the transition to the U.S. The transition to U.S. Um, started while I was still in Iraq, particularly when I started the work for Counterpart International, at that time managing their portfolio for implementing USAID and UN agencies uh, program, right after 2003 as a country director. Um, then when I earned uh, the Fulbright Scholarship to do my master's, I was placed at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, one of the oldest and most prestigious schools for international relations and diplomacy. So I moved to Boston. Um, a lifetime experience. Uh, there I learned how the world is uh, interconnected and how to tackle issues and regions through a multidisciplinary approach I also gained insights on the international political and economic regimes and the place of the Middle East countries within that regime and that orbit. The transition to U.S. wasn't easy in that it uh, required enormous hard work, discipline, dedications. However, it wasn't difficult too because of my network and support system that I was lucky to have, ranging from American friends, American professors, professional colleagues, and an institution. Um, I would say Boston and Fletcher put me on a track to have a global view of what I used to consider domestic and regional issues. Now let's talk about your favorite stuff, politics. <laughs> We're living in history, basically. The Iraqi, delegation, Iraqi and Kurdish delegation that arrived for the second round of the strategic dialogue are still in Washington. The first round of the dialogue was a few months ago, and it was a short virtual meeting, and basically no attention was paid to the KRG. However, this meeting seems to be a bit different. The KRG team was an important component of the discussions, and it's clear that some attention was paid to the disputes between Erbil and Baghdad. Also, during the press conference in the morning of the strategic dialogue, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said, I urged Baghdad to clinch a budget deal with the Kurdistan regional government. And later, after his meeting with Dr. Fuad Hussein, he tweeted, I expressed my support for the government's efforts to address the Iraqi people's demands for a more just nation and a budget deal for the Kurdistan region. Now, it's clear that the U.S. wants a stable and friendly Iraq and wants to resolve the disputes between the KRG and Baghdad within the framework of the Iraqi constitution. What's your take on that? I think the United States um, understands that the obstacles to reach uh, a fair and sustained budget deal and a deal that covers all the chronically pending issues between Baghdad and Kurdistan, um, the obstacle to all that is the populist politicians, regional, military, and political proxies, and the simmering propaganda against uh, the Kurdistan region led by fragmented political establishments in Baghdad. The Samir campaign is hindering and deterring the current government uh, in Baghdad from taking tangible steps towards solving these problems that are actually not only um, uh, hurt the people of Kurdistan, as some of the politicians in Baghdad would like to think. These chronic, uh, chronic problems actually also hurt the people of Iraq and to some extent damaging the Iraqi economy. 
I think the United States and on the sideline of Prime Minister Kadhimi's visit to um, Washington wanted to convey the message that America supports a comprehensive deal between the Kurdistan regional government and the government of Iraq, which in turn will push Iraq and Kurdistan to progress and move towards political and economic reforms that will integrate the Kurdistan, Kurdistan's economy and Iraq's economy to a broader regional and hence a global economy. Having a visibly strong Kurdish presence at the strategic dialogue meetings is an important step towards achieving what Secretary Pompeo mentioned, a more just nation. Now let's pivot to the ongoing negotiations between the KRG and Baghdad. Negotiations have been ongoing for several months now. But early in August, it appeared that the negotiations had fallen apart. Baghdad wanted full control over the Kurdistan region's borders. And right after the meeting, both sides called on each other to respect the constitution. A few days later, the Kurdistan Prime Minister, Kurdistan Region Prime Minister, Masrur Barzani, announced that a partial budget agreement had been reached between Baghdad and Erbil after his phone call with the Iraqi PM. Do you think that a sustainable or long-term agreement is feasible? If so, how would you describe a sustainable solution? Um, A sustainable and long-term deal, it's definitely possible and feasible, and it has a a clear legal framework within the Iraqi constitution. As I mentioned, populism and smear campaign against the Kurdistan region in Baghdad, which is supported and encouraged by influential regional powers through political and military proxies in Iraq, prevent the current Baghdad government from reaching a just and fair deal for both sides based on the constitutional articles, which, by the way, have already sorted out the devolution of power and the structural relations between the federal government in Baghdad and the regional government in Erbil. The current temporal and, if we can call it, gentleman agreement that has been reached between Prime Minister Masrur Barzani and Prime Minister Academy, provides Prime Minister Academy's cabinet some time to enhance its political posture in Baghdad and then come back again to the negotiation table with the right decision-making powers to reach a deal. I think it was a right move by Prime Minister Barzani to give the new cabinet in Baghdad a few months and to let the international community understand that the Kurdistan region is serious in its efforts uh, to strike a long-lasting agreement, actually, that can benefit both the people of Iraq and the people of Kurdistan. We saw how Prime Minister Bazani's move to push the three-month tactical agreement has been positively echoed in Washington, D.C., through Secretary, uh, Secretary Pompeo's remarks and tweets and through the strong presence of the Kurdistan government delegation at the strategic dialogue meetings. As for um, what a sustainable solution might look like, from my work in Iraq and Kurdistan issues, a sustainable solution would be based on the constitutional articles because um, it's the only legal bonding social contract between the federal state, and in this case Iraq, and the regional political entity, in this case, Kurdistan region. However, um, we also need to take into consideration the crucial developments um, emerged recently in Iraq and how the state has already slipped into degree of severe fragility 
or according to the international relations lexicon, failed the state, and try to think out of the box to establish a mechanism that secures a better future for the people of Iraq and the people of Kurdistan. In this regard, I would like to quote Iraq's Minister of Finance and Deputy Prime Minister Dr. Ali Alawi, who in a recent interview with TRT World stated that, I'm trying to get to remember exact word, but he basically stated that there has to be internal reform through devolution of power. We might have to restructure the power relationships in this country, he means Iraq, in a fundamentally different way within the geostrategic unit that's called Iraq. Dr. Alawi's statement provides some insights into the realization that Iraq has to progress to a different power sharing structure, something like a confederation. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that we have to be open to the to these new trends in the international political system and try to adopt the ones that totally address the people's demands in Iraq and Kurdistan. Now, you mentioned decentralization, and that was basically your PhD dissertation as well. And you mentioned confederation. What would an ideal confederation look like? Would that include a confederal region for the Kurds, Sunnis, and Shias, and other components? There is nothing in the world that talks about ideal structures or ideal confederation. It's up to the political establishment, to the people of Iraq, to decide and to draw the lines and and the borders of what type of confederations that they are reasonably comfortable with and can sustain peaceful coexistence between all the different factions in in Iraq. Okay, now do you think that there is an appetite for devolution of power, create more regions or federal regions or confederal regions, however they decide, among the both political leaders and society? The Iraqi society, society, I think they they got there. Um, The current demonstrations in the south and in Basra, every every time there is something in Basra, there are um, voting in their uh, provincial council towards announcing Basra, converting Basra to a region. Um, The same happened in Ambar, the same happened in Mosul. The aspirations in order to have people govern their own provinces or a better version of decentralization, which has been activated since 2015, with some hiccups, of course. But this doesn't mean decentralization itself. In itself, it's a it's it's a bad process. It means that the application of it in the in Iraq was not in in a uh, in a good way. Um, in terms of the appetite, it's a political will, and we all understand that the situation in Iraq is not decided inside Iraq. Um, the strategic decision of war and peace and a new structure, a new devolution of power, it's unfortunate, but it's, it's, it's the reality is on the ground. It's being decided by regional powers and to some extent, the international community. So I, I, I consider the venue of this continuous talk between the Kurdistan uh, government and government in Baghdad, which by the way, didn't just start it Right now, these conversations and discussions and negotiations have started actually to take shape since two years. And now with this new gentleman deal between Prime Minister Brzezani and Prime Minister Karimi, it keeps the process alive. It keeps the conversation alive in order to get into a better deal. 
I would think it depends also on the future of the regional power and the future of the American presence in the in the region. It's 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 um um its current um uh, issues with Iran. It all affects what's going on in Iraq, but it all st- also start with the political uh, leadership understanding that they are about to lose Iraq and. The recent demonstration, just since 48 hours now, we see what's going on in Nasiri and Diqar in Basra. And these are always ongoing demonstrations since months now. So if the Iraqi government wants to survive and for the state to survive, they need to have a new structure and devolution of power, not only with the Kurdistan region, of course, with the rest of Iraq as well. Let's turn back to the strategic dialogue. Another major issue that was pointed out was the fate of the Yazidis and Christians, basically Sinjar and Nineveh Plains. Now, the security and socioeconomic situations have been the prime reasons that have prevented about 300,000 Yazidis and Christians to return to Sinjar and Nineveh Plains. The problem is the militia groups such as the PMF and PKK. This was also pointed out by the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. He stated, armed groups not under control of the Iraqi presidents have impeded U.S. efforts to aid those groups. Those groups need to be replaced by local police as soon as possible. And then he continued and said, I assured Dr. Fraud that we could help and we would help. Now, part of your work with the DAI has been about sustainable solution for the IDPs to return to their places of origin. In your view, does Prime Minister Kadami have enough influence to push the Hajj and other militias out? The presence of um, armed groups like PKK or, or militias with the transnational allegiances um, provides proxies for regional powers uh, agenda. And these proxies inhabiting the return and the state of IDPs in Nenoa, in places like Nenoa uh, Plain, for example, and actually carrying out um, a very systematic demographic change in that uh, 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 area, which is rich with pu- plural types of faith-based uh, communities and diverse type of faith-based uh, community. Um, Through my work, we did our best to design programs that secure not only the basic needs in the region, but also services that sustain the return of the IDPs and keep them there. Now, whether Prime Minister Academy has the tools or the political leverage to do something with the militias, it is still too early to judge that. That's number one. Number two. Militias within transnational allegiances, with the cross-border allegiances to regional power, it's not only an Iraqi issue that can be addressed only by Iraqi government. And that's where the United States, um, and through Secretary Pompeo's remarks, um, basically, I think, he showed the interest of the United States to help in that, because it's not a domestic issue. Um, these militias have, as I said, transnational allegiances, and the decision about neutralizing their influence in these areas and stop the demographic change process against the uh, faith-based communities, it's a regional decision as much as it's a domestic decision and a political will on the Iraqi government. And that's where 
uh, the bulk of and the weight of America's political leverage in the region will come handy and will help the Iraqi government in order to stabilize this area and neutralize the political and, and military regional proxies in that area. On the same line, some of the Yazidi organizations in Sinjar and Christians in Nineveh Plain have been lobbying for decentralization so they can manage their own affairs. The model that you suggested, uh, confederation or decentralization, devolution of power, is it feasible for such small areas to have semi-autonomous or some type of local administration where they can manage their own affairs? Um, there are two legal venues that are already in place for that. Number one, um, the draft of the Kurdistan Constitution, which is yet to be ratified, but it's been passed through the Kurdistan region uh, uh, parliament uh, a few years ago. At that draft constitution, there is a clear article that talks about autonomous region in Nenawa Plain for the faith-based community. So that's that's there, the legal legal framework there. If we t- talk about a legal framework within the Iraq as um, within the Iraqi government or a kind of Iraq as a state, we see that back in February 2014, there was a, a decree uh, by the Iraqi Council of Ministers uh, converting Nenawa Plain into a province, but it's not been activated for obvious political calculations, lest other areas in the rest of Iraq will also demand to be uh, transferred into province. So the idea, uh, it's there. The legal framework is there. Uh, the Iraqi Council of Ministers' decision, it's there. The legal, uh, the local governments, provincial governments, in this case, in Nineveh Plain, the governments on the level of commissioner and the district and the sub-districts in Sheikhan, Talkif, Hamadaniya, and uh, Sinjar, of course. Uh, the basics and uh, for the legal, uh, local government is there too. It's about a political will. It's about um, a new mechanism. And I will go back again to the idea of we need to think carefully about a new governance structure in Iraq, be it uh, a full-fledged uh, devolution of power in, in the form of uh, confederation with the Kurdistan region and a devolution of administrative powers with the rest of Iraqi provinces, a decentralization, or autonomous region in um, in Nineveh Plain. And by the way, we we have many very developed, very pioneer countries in Europe and elsewhere that within one state, there are several structures. Spain, they have, for example, decentralization and they have federation and confederation as well, all in the same uh, country. Um, Brazil, it's one of the biggest country in, in, in Latin America. They have 26 decentralized political entities within that country. And we all witnessed how that country developed and become one of the pioneer countries in the world the last 10 years. So it's actually doable and it's there, but it's a political will. And also, of course, it's a regional negative intervention in that area. In that case, and in that part specifically, we need the help and support of the United States. We normally ask several questions at the end of every interview. The first question is, what is a word or phrase that sums up Kirkuk for you? 
I was born in Kirkuk, but my uh, family was pushed out to Baghdad through an early stage of Arabization process back in the, in the 70s. Um, I grew up in a, in, uh, in a house in Baghdad that we are relatively far from um, Kurdistan struggle and the struggle in Kirkuk. But in that house, we always, my parents always saying, we will, one day we will go back to Kirkuk. And they were not politically active, but as Kurd from Kirkuk, that's their aspiration, was their aspiration always. From that, I learned that Kirkuk means belonging to to the Kurds of Kirkuk. I get so um, kind of, um, it's, 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 it's interesting that some political analysis um, provide very simplistic view about the Kurds' um, uh, issue in Kirkuk, summarizing it into oil and economic benefit and all that. It's, it's really way deeper and beyond that. It's, it's about belonging. And I saw it firsthand from my family uh, in Baghdad. Now the final question. What's a word or phrase that sums up America for you? America is, is the land of hard work, opportunities, and liberty. It's also a human experiment. So, of course, it always needs tweaks and modifies, and it always progress forward. Thank you for the interview, Shalafan. Thank you for having me.